We're counting down. Good afternoon. It's 40 seconds on the clock here. <laughs> We will start in 30 seconds. Please feel free to help yourself with water over there and note and pen. As we start, I just wanted to say a big thank you to our tech support here. His name is Alex. Thank you so much, Alex. <laughs> All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I am CU San Wong from Oregon State University. I get to moderate this session, and this session is called Exploring Research on innovative approaches to nutrition education and training for nutrition professionals. You can imagine all these presenters at their free time or even in their dreams are thinking about innovation and research and how to train these professionals. So I can't wait to hear from them. So today, we have three presenters. The first one is Dr. Caraquit, she is right there. And the second one is Dr. Monica Esquivel. And the third speaker is Ms. Colleen Kaiser. So Dr. Kara is going to start us off and she is from Rutgers University. Uh, Dr. Monica Esquivel is from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And Ms. Colleen Kaiser is from Montana State University. Each of them will present for about 12 minutes. At the end, you hear me ring the bell to kind of gently nudge them. And uh, we will save all the question towards the end. So without further ado, uh, let's give Dr. Kara Quid a warm welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, I am Kara Cute, an associate professor in the Department of Human Ecology at Rutgers University. And I am really pleased to be here today um, talking about student experiences and confidence in addressing food insecurity. And I'm really pleased to be presenting this on behalf of my co-authors listed here and other members of the SNEB subcommittee on food insecurity in higher education. Okay, so many of us in the room here today train students to address food insecurity. And I know I don't have to tell you that food insecurity is an important and very complex public health issue. Um, and we do expect students in health-related fields to be knowledgeable and able to work with clients and colleagues about food insecurity. And I have just two examples of professional um, competencies that, that are expected for specifically nutrition students. One is an SNEB uh, nutrition education competency to be able to work with colleagues to develop and implement programs that address food security and then an ASCEND um, performance indicator to determine barriers that might influence a client's nutritional status. So again, these are just two examples of what we expect from uh, nutrition educators. Uh, and the data that I am presenting today come from a larger study um, that, our, that our subcommittee's been working on, and we're really interested in investigating, are students exposed to uh, the issue of food insecurity, and what kinds of experiences do they have in addressing food insecurity during their training? Um, do students understand what food insecurity is, and what are their understandings? How, how do they think about food insecurity? Um, and there are some great papers on, on uh, the, or a poster earlier today on that. Um, 
are students confident to address food insecurity? And then what I really want to focus on here today is what is the relationship between the types of experiences that they've had and the types of training they've had with um, their levels of confidence? Okay, so when we were thinking about experiences with food insecurity, we really divided them up into three main buckets. The first is that personal experience or lived experience of food insecurity. So we know that students come to college having, some of them having been food insecure um, earlier in their lives. For some of them, um, they experience food insecurity for the first time when they get to college. Um, a lot of students uh, have extracurricular experience or experiences outside of the classroom, um, maybe doing volunteer work or paid employment around issues of food insecurity. And then finally, students study issue, the issue of food insecurity in um, many of their classes. So again, we were interested in looking at how those experiences are related to confidence to address food insecurity in their future as professionals. And for today, we're gonna focus on those first two buckets, that personal experience and that extracurricular experience is what we're going to be uh, looking at. So we conducted a cross-sectional online survey in 2022 using a convenient sample of undergraduate and graduate students majoring in health-related fields. We had just under 300 participants in the analyses that I'll be presenting today. Um, those uh, participants come from 12 U.S. universities that are perhaps not surprisingly, the universities of uh, where our subcommittee members work, although we have more than 12 people, but the IRB proved challenging for a lot of those schools, as it often does, so we had, uh we ended up with 12 schools and we had a lottery for gift card incentives. Oh, and I forgot, I wanted to mention that we have photographs um, sprinkled throughout of students engaged in extracurricular um, activities around food insecurity at our various uh, universities and colleges. Okay, so we measured personal experience with food insecurity using the two item hunger vital sign. And we actually asked that twice. We asked it first for experiences prior to coming to college, and then we asked it since you've been at college. Uh, we measured experience with food insecurity outside of the classroom setting using one check all that apply closed-ended question, and we did give participants the opportunity to write in for some other responses. And then we had eight items um, relating to confidence to address food insecurity using a three-point um, response scale, which I will show you in a moment. Um, so in terms of our sample, the, the almost half were nutrition and dietetics students. Then we had about one in five public health students and one in five social work students that responded to the survey. Uh, most of them were more advanced students. So three quarters of them were fourth year, fifth year, or graduate students, which actually worked out really well because that gave them, it meant that they had an opportunity to have these experiences to take those classes before we were um, surveying them. Uh, most of them were full-time and female. 40.4% uh, were first-generation college students, and almost 60% reported that they worked full-time, uh, which may be related to the high number of graduate students in particular that we had in the sample. Okay, so moving on to the results, we found that about one in five had experienced food insecurity prior to coming to college. That number more than doubled when we asked them about experiences while they were in college. Uh, and, and that 43.1% of experiencing food insecurity during college is pretty comparable to what we see at the national level. It's, it's about what we might expect. Um, then looking at the different types of experiences that students reported having, um, I just want to say this is, this is organized in um, most frequent to least frequent up until that 
other section towards the bottom. So the first seven are most to least frequent. We see experiences like service learning, internships, um, attending lectures on and off campus, um, and decreasing frequency. But the most common response was that other volunteer. And we actually provided examples there. We said working with a community group, maybe working with a student club, or a sorority or fraternity. And that's where most of the students were getting those extracurricular experiences from. Um, Okay, and I did also want to just point out that, that almost a quarter of them said that they had no extracurricular experiences. Okay, now looking at the confidence, um, overall we saw a lot of confidence. I'm going to just walk you through this a little bit. The light blue and pink bars are the somewhat confident and very confident responses combined. You can see that overall the participants were saying that they were confident to address these um, these topics as future professionals. So we had a range of, of different um, topics, including the first one, which we saw the highest level of confidence on, was determining barriers that might influence a client's nutritional status. That's where we saw the highest. As we go down, we see um, a mix, but the lowest levels of confidence were working to develop policies to address food insecurity. And I, I agree that that is challenging. Um, and using a food security tool to address food security in individuals. Those were the two uh, where we saw the lowest levels of confidence. And it's sort of mixed with policy, working on policy and program stuff with individuals throughout, throughout this, um, this list. And they are related to those uh, co professional competencies. So, we combined those items into a confidence scale that had high internal consistency, um, and the mean was 2.17, again, very high on a one to three scale. Okay, so now looking at the relationship between personal experience and confidence to address food insecurity in the future. We saw no significant differences between those who had personal experience of food insecurity uh, and those who did not. And that's true for whether it was personal experience of food insecurity before they got to college or while they were um, in college. We did not see any relationship there. Um, there's a lot on this slide, so I'll just orient you. The, this is, these are the same experiences that were on the earlier slide that were listed in that decreasing order of frequency. Uh, we have the mean in the second column of people who said yes, that they had engaged in those experiences, and then the mean of those who did not in the, in the following column. Um, and the first one I want to just point out is this none. So those students who had no extracurricular experiences had lower mean confidence than students who had some extracurricular experiences, right? So, so having no experience working on this outside of the classroom was related to lower confidence. Um, and that is true, so, so there were four other um, specific experiences that were also related to confidence. Um, students who had attended a lecture on campus, students who had some kind of student leadership role in terms of food insecurity, students who attended a lecture off campus, and students who had that other volunteer um, experience all reported higher confidence to address um, food insecurity in the future. And this pattern, even though it wasn't statistically significant for those other variables, that pattern of having experiences um, being related to, to higher confidence was true. Okay, so 
So in conclusion, overall, we find that students do report feeling confident in their ability to address food insecurity as future professionals. Um, personal experience of food insecurity, whether before or during college, was not related to confidence to address food insecurity as a future professional. Students with any extracurricular experience reported higher confidence than those with none, and there were some very specific experiences that were related to higher confidence, particularly that volunteer experience, attending lectures both on campus and off campus, and having a leadership role. And in terms of, of the takeaway from, from um, this study, we see that extracurricular experiences are related to confidence to address food insecurity. Now, can we say that doing those extracurricular activities causes students to become more confident? No, we cannot. This is a cross-sectional study, so we can't point to any kind of causal relationship here. Um, but if you did have a student, if you were to have a student that had lower confidence, this suggests that it might be helpful to have them engage in some kind of extracurricular uh, activities around food insecurity to boost that confidence. Okay, so um, in terms of our group's next steps, uh, we want to look at that third bucket that I didn't present on today, and that is the types of classes, the number of classrooms, the classes, the types of classroom experiences that students have, and if those relate to confidence to address food insecurity. Um, and, and finally, we want to take all that we've learned across this study to create a toolkit, it's under development now, for instructors to engage students in food insecurity work in ways that students tell us that they find to be effective. Um, so with that, we want to thank all of the students who participated in the study. We want to thank the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University Nutrition Department for providing funding for participant incentives, and to thank all of the members of the um, subcommittee who worked on the study, um, who are either co-authors or listed here and some of them are sitting right there, um, so to say thank you to them. Um, and also that uh, for more information, you're welcome to reach out to me on this particular study, but Virginia Gray, who is here, is um, leading the larger study, and so she's available if you have questions about the larger study. That's it, thank you. Here we are, thank you. Um, again, I'm Monica Esquivel, uh, University, from University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm associate professor and a, the dietetics program director. Um, before we get started, just wanted to, wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the land that the University of Hawaii at Manoa is, is rests on, which um, is that of the Native Hawaiian people, uh, for which our university has um, a mission of of serving. Uh, so uh, today I'm sharing a little on some innovative clinical dietetics instructional methods uh, for teaching clinical nutrition 
And as I was preparing, this work happened kind of pre-pandemic, during the pandemic. I recall what really triggered this, and it was this um, a statement from some students and preceptors of our internship. And you know, they, one of the statements we ask our students to do this, um, looking into the community resources for patients that they're seeing in a clinical setting. And both students and preceptors are like, what does it matter? This is a clinical rotation. What does it matter, you know, where the student, where these patients live? And I thought, wait a minute, I teach MNT. I can try to figure out how we can address a little bit of this barrier. And so uh, also to situate uh, ourselves, um, I'm talking about an area we refer to as the United States Affiliated Pacific. And in the map, you see the geographic region is spans about the continental United States. So there's so many different unique cultures and islands um, across our region. And it is an area that um, PIHOA, the Pacific Island Office Association in 2010, declared this state of an epidemic of non-communicable diseases. Another really unique attribute about our region is the Compact of Free Association, and this is an agreement that um, allows or gives permission, or I don't know what you want to have the right, correct way, but people can migrate freely through the area. And so we see a lot of um, people from the Micronesian islands of Chuuk, Pohnpei, Koshrai living in other places. And what it really necessitates is the registered dietitians in our region need some kind of specific um, training in how to work uh, with these diverse populations. Also in the U.S. affiliated Pacific, there's nutrition training programs at both UHM and University of Guam, with UHM having the only diet accredited dietetics training program that I say is physically located in the region. Now with all these distance programs, you can be in you know, Timbuktu or wherever and in Hawaii, but we are only the only ones physically located, and University of Guam is also striving towards that. Um, and so our universities partner to create some of these teaching materials for our clinical uh, courses, uh, specifically thinking about Chamorro, Filipino, Samoan, Micronesian, and of course, Native Hawaiian populations. So really our objectives, we set out to create four clinical case studies that emphasize USAP populations, as well as health conditions that are really prevalent in the region. We wanted to enhance our students' preparedness for serving these populations, uh, address things like cultural competency, which is not my favorite word, cultural safety, I think most importantly, client-centered approaches, um, and as well as critical thinking. So I'm a real big community-based participatory research kind of person, and I realized after the fact, I was like, that's essentially the approach we took to developing our case studies, is really this working with uh, interprofessional, not only faculty, but also the healthcare practitioners who are out working in Guam, in Hawaii, and trying to figure out what are the kinds of cases that you're seeing that we could utilize um, to help support training of our students, as well as other cultural experts. And so as a team, we came together um, and identified the conditions and ethnic groups or populations that um, the dietitians were needing most training in. 
Uh, we worked together to develop the case study materials um, as well as some ancillary teaching resources. And one of my favorite ideas that came actually from the nursing um, department was this idea of like a case progression. And so we have, we developed four cases and you can kind of see down below, but what they sort of mimic, and I don't know if the students put this together as they're going through, but it's kind of the progression of a chronic illness from something early like metabolic syndrome to what, you know, worst case scenario um, could end in heart failure and stage renal disease but um, what we heard from the community was that this, you know, they have, they see this in their patients and it happens. And so why don't we kind of try to set our students up for that as well? Um, so each case picture features a person, a new person of a different ethnic background. Um, and it has some additional kind of social and environmental considerations um, that the, the student has to really consider when deciding the best care for the patient. Um, the cases were then embedded into this EHR Go um, system that maybe some of you are familiar with, and so uh, that's where they came up. So this is just one example of one of the patients. Um, the front page has overviews and resources, and down below if you scroll, there's additional materials from some cultural experts who you know, spoke to uh, cultural norms within the Chamorro population. Um, some of the, the materials were actually adapted from FNEP that they used for training FNEP um, nutrition educators. And then you know, my favorite part, they go into the actual electronic health record and they can actually see all of kind of the social histories, the diet, all of that material that we were developed was um, put into EHR Go. Uh, so this is another, um, there's like the picture of the embedded video that was created for American Samoa. Um, our patient, Mrs. Uolese, um, our Chukis um, patient, Mr. Aki, and so all of that, um, and Mr. Reyes. So those are just our different images and pictures, but you know, they don't see this in any of their other material, and our students don't see themselves also represented either, so it was nice. And so this is actually one of my favorite parts is like, okay, you can give them the case studies and they read it, but what are they going to do? So of course we're at MNT classes, medical nutrition therapy. They have to do an A-dime note like they would do. They're at nutrition, they're going through the nutrition care process to do their assessment, diagnosis, intervention, monitoring. Um, but we created, and this was adapted from our nursing department, and they have these eco maps. And so we call it, quote, the culture form. We probably need a better term for it, but it's an eco map. So at the center of the eco map is the patient, and each of those bubbles is another person or organization or resource they're related to, and they kind of put these different lines. They're strongly attached to represent how close they, those um, relationships are to the person. And then on the second, they um, identify different areas or different factors that are related to social determinants of health that are impacting the current and future status of that patient. And my favorite part of the whole thing is step three, and students are like, oh, 
Dr. E, really. Step three, patient strengths. They have to identify what are the strengths of this patient in those relationships, in the social determinants of health. What is the strength that is going to help this patient to kind of move their health forward in a, in a better direction? So they do this for each of the patients. Um, and it's probably yeah, one of my favorite activities. And it's one of the favorite activities to watch students do from start to end to see like in the beginning what they wrote as a patient's strength, they're like the mom. I'm like, <laughs> and then by the end they're saying, oh, they have a mom and then this resources, you can see they're starting to put it together. Uh, we did some kind of evaluations, post-semester surveys of their just general cultural knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, etc. Um, over, I think it was about five semesters, uh, the case studies were delivered, and this was in the middle of the pandemic, so it was a interesting. Um, 45 students finished the case studies, um, 35 finished our survey, and what we found is that um, all students either somewhat or very had um, shown some positive impacts on their knowledge and understanding awareness of cultures, fine. Um, fine. What I think was like a little bit fewer students were really aware that their own biases and that they brought culture that might influence how they interact with that patient. So things that, you know, my cultural background influences how I behave in the classroom or I might have preconceived notions about culture. Those things students kind of were like oh, a little mixed bag, not in agreement with, which I think is expected based on our activities. And so, you know, in summary, the activities supported student learning, knowledge about providing care to patients in other cultures, but we really have to find some other way to bring in this idea of implicit bias and that their own culture might influence, you know, how they're um, interacting with patients and working with others. So our next steps, uh, we're looking forward to integrating some of these case studies and some of our um, UH system-wide interprofessional simulation activities. Uh, we're also looking, we have a group on our department and campus that does a lot of open education resource textbook development, so getting those embedded into those OER resources for adoption, as well as lastly starting to develop some ancillary activities uh, so we can begin to address that awareness and um, for implicit bias. So. That's all I have, and I just uh, thank you all for your time and look forward to discussion later. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. E. <laughs> I just learned one new thing about I got it now. Sorry, we're there. Just F5. It's not letting me. Hold on. Just have patience. All right. Thank you. The floor is yours. Thank you. Hello, I'm Colleen Kaiser, and I'm from Montana State University. And what a spot to be after these last two presentations. Do you not have ideas like flashing in your mind about how you might change things up or what you might add? 
I love it, it's very good. Um, I'm director of the Montana Dietetic Internship Program, and um, I'm here today to talk about visions of the possible student graduate experiences with public policy in graduate education. First, I have to acknowledge uh, First, those students, those graduate students that participated in our study, but also the great uh, team that I've had the pleasure of working with, Dr. Mitch Vaderlas, Anna Diffendorfer, Lindsay Ganong. So a great experience, a great team. Our question was, why does policy education matter to future dietetic practitioners? Our objective was to identify dietetic students' perceptions before and perceived growth after completing an interprofessional online graduate level course in public policy. Our master's uh, degree in dietetic systems leadership has included interdisciplinary coursework to prepare strong and vibrant dietetic leaders. The program has partnered with human development and family science to include a family law and public policy course. Other courses in our program and in dietetics education in general have touched on public policy, but this course also allows students through a culminating experience to better understand the role of public policy plays in human well-being and the importance of the intersection between family, research, the health and human science professional, and social policy. The course is grounded in the social ecological model that many of us are familiar with, and Dr. Vaderlas uh, does deliver the course. And in his words, he states, policy influences families, professionals, and environments, including the food environment. Sectors of influence include the policies and the people who implement them. I usually educate my students that when you work with humans, you must consider their environment and the whole human. Policy can limit or decrease abilities and barriers related to food choices, safe places to play, exercise in school, family leave, and these are all directly related to dietetics. I then explain that while serving the whole human, their experience might, may lie outside one of the areas needing support. So without that expertise, they need to reach out to professionals who are aware of social policy in other areas in order to refer and connect people with services. Engaging in the scholarship of teaching and learning, this was a retrospective study where we sought to truly exchange ideas and inform practices. The focus of visions of the possible considered the impact of policy education on the perceptions of self, and as a future dietetics practitioner. The authors of the study are unaware of other published research, specifically with dietetic students taking interdisciplinary policy courses. In looking at the curriculum development, the Montana Dietetic Internship Program is interdisciplinary degree focused on leadership within dietetics. In developing the master's DI, the goal was to provide a quality education while being strategic about workload and cost efficiency. We sought to utilize innovative interdisciplinary options, which included unique partnerships with human development and family sciences and outstanding faculty. So HDFS 426, Family Law, Public Policy, was inserted and is already an interdisciplinary course. 
The student base includes family, science scholars, community health scholars, and early childhood education students. Dr. Vardalas instructs the interdisciplinary course, and it's offered in a six-week online format. Dietetic students are introduced to policy-making processes, the role of family in policy, different perspectives, and the influence policy and the specific policies related to food, nutrition, parenting, poverty, education, housing, romantic relationships, aging, and healthcare, the span, right? Of particular note is the student's topic area, their own topic area. This is a major assignment in which the course requires students to select policy relevant to their future careers and where they see themselves working. So they are asked to analyze this using existing research. Dietetic students, as you can imagine, select topics such as SNAP, school food lunch program, farm bill, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement. Makes sense. In this study, then, our basis was those participants, 40 of our master's level dietetic students. And you can see predominantly a female cohort, 36 and four males, enrolled in the public policy course in 2020, 21, and 22. Many, 53%, had not taken specific course on public policy in their undergraduate degrees. Our evaluation methods, the dietetic students completed an online survey with open-ended items after taking the policy course. Qualitative thematic analysis procedures were implemented by two researchers of the team with open-ended data and good intercoder percentage agreement. Our results, we saw three themes develop. Policy learning experiences, policy and dietetics are interconnected, and humanizing of policy. So in asking the questions, how comfortable did you feel talking about policy before taking the policy course? And then how comfortable did you feel talking about policy after taking the course? Most students were nervous to enter the course, but afterwards identified how policy and learning experiences in the course left them feeling somewhat too extremely comfortable in talking about policy. I have a few quotes of, of participants. This one is, this course offered information that helped me further understand policy, a topic that I didn't feel comfortable with before. And another one after completing the course noted, the public policy study will help to influence where I want to petition funding, research, and change in the future. I would love to be involved in these areas as well as in the preventive measures of nutrition and health. Look at there. Connection for sure and the learning experiences. And again, among that nervousness of entering the course, we also identified policy and dietetics are interconnected. Participant comments. In one individual, the pre-comment, for dietetics profession to grow and be of more value in the healthcare field, understanding public policy is critical. But that even further developed in their post. Public policy will influence future work in community nutrition because many programs in the community rely on specific policies for funding and grants, or even certain programs' existence in general. And another comment that I thought was rather powerful, their pre-comment, my thoughts in entering the public policy class as a dietetic student where this material is relevant to understanding how politics plays a role in nutrition and families. 
but their post comment, studying public policy will influence my future in all aspects of dietetics. Yay, right? Dietitians are also able to get into the conversation of public policy and be a positive influence for change in the healthcare setting. Isn't that good? Another question we ask is, how do you think studying public policy will or will not influence your future work in dietetics, uh, as even noted in the previous one? But the course did allow for humanizing of those public policy impacts. Students cared more about the role of policy in dietetics practice once they understood how it impacted individuals and families, which in turn are our future clients and patients that we care for. Surveyed students generally believed that there were, they were more prepared to connect clients and patients to food resources in future dietetic roles after taking the course. Student participants noted, as someone interested in community nutrition, I quickly learned how important it was to understand public policy and the programs and resources available for community members. And another said, I think understanding public policy will help us as professionals promote programs and resources for our clients and patients. Student participants associated a strong foundational knowledge in public policy with being an effective nutrition practitioner. Uh, one particular comment that, that was of note, public policy knowledge will allow me to have a better understanding of different facets of the food system in America and how people are affected by it. So in answering our visions of the possible, yes, it is possible. The scholarship of teaching and learning as applied in this study was appropriate to identify student perceptions before and perceived growth after completing an interprofessional online graduate course in public policy. Encouraging interdisciplinary approaches, especially in policy, carries the hope of bridging disciplines in professional practice. And that is a strong team, is it not? So our next steps, we plan to continue this line of investigation about the inclusion of policy in dietetics education and assess the positive impacts of interprofessional education. We are going to return back to these three cohorts who are now practicing dietitians. And we're going to uh, survey them and assess the impacts that this learning has had on their current practice and even those outcomes of their current practice in terms of, of their clients and their patients' well-being and how strong of an impact it has it been. So that's what we hope to see and see what the, their work is supporting. And very glad to be here, and thank you for your attention. How about another round of applause for our innovative speakers? Thank you. I would like to transition into inviting our three innovative speakers up here so that we will have a discussion with them or ask them hard questions. Uh, if you have questions, please feel free to come up front to use the microphone. I would like to start off with a question as they um, 
settle here. Thank you very much for sharing your, uh, you know, your innovative ideas to help train the next generation of professionals. I started with a simple question. You know, innovation is nonlinear. What will your next iteration look like? Imagine if you have the magic to change one thing, what would you change to make this training um, something more, I don't know, just something better? Dr. Cute, can we start with you? <laughs> um, sure. Um, that's actually, it's a little bit of a hard question for me, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Um, because I'm not in a nutrition department and mm -hmm. I don't actually teach nutrition classes, so it's, it's a little bit challenging to think about that. Um, but I guess based on the data that, that um, I presented, I would say in, in, increasing opportunities for extracurricular um, food insecurity related work um, mm -hmm. and that that seems like it would help to move students to, to feeling more confident in addressing food insecurity in, in their work. So that would be my, my innovation. Thank you. So we've been to an innovation um, workshop together. So this is good, this is fun. Um, I think for me, the vision, the next step, and it came from why I reached out to our nursing folks, was that they, we have simulation exercises, IPE ones, that bring in the, um, the theater students. And oh. so theater students come in and they pretend to be a family member of one of our patients, and our students have to plan a discharge meeting. So if I had like all the resources, I would actually bring these things to life for our students somehow in the simulation room, you know, together working um, to care for these patients. So that would be my fun next step. That's so cool, thank you, Dr. E. I think, um, so this course is delivered online and our students in this portion of the master's program are all over in the United States or potentially mm -hmm. all over. I like the idea of if we could add to that a practical hands-on application like working in a food bank, volunteering, have that piece because I'm hearing it made a big difference in their confidence and that's part of what this is too, is to build confidence. So I, I like that idea. <laughs> well, building along that, uh, just checking if there's anyone having other questions. So, uh, Dr. Cute, this one is about uh, specifically the highest confidence score seen in the lecture off campus, right? That component. I wonder, would you please uh, elaborate on what is being defined as the lecture off campus, especially if you have also looked into any dose response, you know, of all this different exposure? Um, we really didn't, it, the lecture off campus didn't have any explanatory um, information in the question other than that it was just an off campus lecture versus on campus lecture. The one that we had more explanation around was that other volunteer where we kind of gave examples with that. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I mean I think, I think my guess is that all of those activities probably had some impact to some extent, it was just that our sample was relatively small and we mm -hmm. couldn't statistically see those significant differences. But um, it was those, those two, uh, 
the on-campus, the off-campus lectures, that other volunteer, um, and uh, the fourth one was, um, I don't remember what the fourth one was. The student. Volunteer. Oh, leadership, leadership, leadership right. So, some kind of student leadership role, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think probably all of them, across all the yeah. things that we asked about, you know, I, I would assume there is some kind of dose response relationship. We didn't test for that, but the more you do, the more likely mm -hmm. you would be to, to be confident. I don't see any reason to think that that would not be the case. Yeah, thank you, because I was just curious, you know, at the off-campus, does the podcast that you listen, you know, whatever that you sign up online, like LinkedIn, would oh. they count, or is this more like a distant like online courses, that's where I was just curious. We didn't ask about that, but that would be really interesting to ask about podcasts or yeah. sort of other kind of non-traditional learning opportunities because mm -hmm. the lecture is kind of, the way we were thinking of it was like someone comes to campus or does a Zoom and you listen to the lecture, but that would be great and that would be important to ask about in the next time we Thank do this. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, uh, in terms of confidence, even public speaking, Right? I, I watch charisma and try to learn how to be more confident. So I wonder if that would count if I were you know, putting yeah. that check. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. My next question goes to Dr. E. Oh, oh, please come forward. All right. Yes, please. Hi. Um, my name is Lucy Langley. I'm from the University of Tennessee. Um, and I'm really interested in like, food security, especially among college students. Um, and I was really interested in Dr. Koo, cool? Cute. Cute. Um, I've done student leadership with Student Basic Needs Coalition, and I've really focused on um, food security in higher education, especially with students. And I've also done like policy work um, for my local state legislator, uh, legislation. Um, and I'm really interested, um, you mentioned that students with lived experience with food insecurity, um, that didn't really impact their uh, like confidence, and I'm just really interested if you could talk more about that. I think we were surprised. I think we thought, well, first of all, thank you for sharing and thank you for the work that, you're, that you do. Um, and I think you would have been a great respondent on our survey because. <laughs> yeah, I'm also an yeah. individual who's experienced food insecurity prior to entering college. So I'm just kind of like, I'm always thinking about that as like a, a take into my work and the work that I do. Yeah, uh, so we thought we would see some relationship there and it just didn't bear out in the, in the data. I don't really have, uh, I don't know if there's another way. You know, we use a short, a very short, um, uh, the, the two item tool, but I don't think that that's, I mean, we found 40% uh, of the students saying that they had experienced it during, uh, food insecurity during college. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe one thing I might say is that confidence across the board was pretty high. Again, our mean was 2.17 um, on a three-point scale, so maybe it was just too high to kind of get at that those differences. But yeah, intuitively, I would think someone who has the lived experience would certainly be more interested in it and perhaps more confident in, in, in addressing it, but we just didn't, it just didn't come out. Thank you. I'm Sarah Hennis. I'm a state coordinator for FNEP at University of Georgia. And I guess I have more of a comment. I, I, just all three of you, I'm, I love the, the bigger picture of your research, the way that I'm seeing it is connecting nutrition, uh, our, our um, training our nutrition professionals to also think 
bigger picture. I think, you know, we have food service, we have clinical, we have community, and I think in, in my growing up, it was like you choose which path afterwards, right? What it sounds like y'all are trying to do is really bridge this, and, you know, our, our participants, is Dr. E? Yeah, you know, when, it's like, well, they're coming to a clinic or their patients, so what about the community? Oh my gosh, like, in my training too, I didn't think about that, but now, I mean, it so matters, right? So I love what you guys are doing in trying to bridge this connection with a, with a, a patient that, just, you know, clinical and community, and that's, that's an area of research interest of mine, more in the weight management realm, but I just, I guess I just wanted to say, I think what you're doing is awesome. <laughs> so. Thank you. I don't know if you have any other comments or, because I know you're focused in your areas, but is that a bigger picture for you guys in connecting? I, I want to thank you for saying that because this is one of my things. <laughs> is we are, we are the nutrition expert and we function and can function and the joy of our career track is we can function yeah. so well in so many things. So you've got to have the bigger picture because that's what that's what's exciting about what we do. That's yeah. what's exciting about our knowledge and how we can help individuals. We're not just a person who gets discharged from a hospital. Mm -hmm. Right. We're not someone who's only experienced this or that. We live, in a, we live in a food environment. We live in a community. We live with our families. And that's the beauty of being the, the professional we are is the, to appreciate all of that. So this is really my I feel very strong about that. Thank you for being that person. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I use it as a recruitment technique. So we're always, you know, I get sent out to like high schools and like they're looking at most of the high school recruitment events. They're like, I want to be a nurse. And I'm always trying to, hopefully there's no nurses. I'm always trying to coax them away, you know, I'm like, but that's one of the things I tell them about why I love our work is that, you know, yes, I've worked in the clinic with a person and then I can work at a policy level and anywhere in between. And I think it like speaks to a lot of people who they don't, you know, they think of a dietitian who's sitting, you know, in a, by themselves or they're just not thinking that way. Anyways, so, yeah. Yeah, the food police, anyways. This is very encouraging, right? So I wonder if there are other ways to measure passion. But I have one more question for you all. Come on, Susan, try to remember it. Uh, so the qualitative interview that you get to do with these students, would you share, like, what is the aha moment for you as you listen to them? What surprises you, you know, based on this work that you have done? Yeah. Okay. I think for me, like the aha moment is that I get, I'm really, I feel like I'm fortunate that I teach them in undergrad and some portion I see in our internship. And it's when they're like at the hospital and they're, I'm reading their journals for the MNT rotation and they're saying, and this person that I saw in discharge, this is where they live, right? And they recognize like the person's going home and this is where they live. And they're like, oh, and I made, you know, so I made them these recommendations on places where they could get X, Y, and Z where they live. And I was like, oh, okay, check. <laughs> that was, you know, like that was the, 
I think very small thing, but that they consider like where the person lives, even though they're seeing them, you know, in the hospital. So that was a good aha moment. Oh, thank you. Other, do you want to share an aha moment in your interaction? Sure. I think, you know, um, we are an interdisciplinary. We're, we're a smaller state as far as numbers of people in Montana. Uh, we just have a little over a million people, so lots of you live in cities much larger than our whole state. But our state's really big. We're the fourth largest in terms of land size. Mm -hmm. So to realize for students to, to go beyond thinking, I'm either this type of dietitian, that type of dietitian, or that, you know, that whole mm. clinical food service management or community is it's so nice to see that they, they saw, they thought, well, why am I, I've had many of them say, we didn't really know why we had to take this course. And then afterwards they're like, oh my goodness, I understand why we need this information. And that's, that's just pleasure right there. That's so good because they're gonna be effective people in their profession. And I, I feel good about that. And we need those in our, our big, vast community that's, that's spread apart, our large, no, our small community spread apart in a large area. We need people that understand policy makes a difference in rural Montana, for example. So this is good. Oh, that's really good, thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just say, I think my little mini aha moment sitting here listening to your presentation was that we have data on policy classes that students have taken. And so our next step is to look at what kinds of classes and classroom-based experiences impact confidence. And so I, so we, I'm like, okay, that definitely we have to dive into the policy class and see, you know, do our data support what you're finding and I might reach out and, and let you know what we find. Okay, that sounds great. Wow, all right. Well, we have seven more minutes. I wanted to see if there is anyone in the audience would like to share a comment or ask a question. Yes, please. So I've been, I've been looking at, Dr. Cute, I've been looking at and thinking about the, the data that you guys presented and it's kind of, it's interesting to me because I think that we focus a lot as well like in the classroom on things like service learning experiences where you go out and engage. And so I was trying to think about, you know, why might that have not been significant in terms of findings? And so I'm wondering if you've considered maybe looking at the data in terms of some like profile analysis to see are, you know, the already confident students, the ones that are seeking out these leadership and volunteer experiences, or is there some other kind of connecting factor that is is leading some of those experiences to be more significant while others maybe aren't. But because I, I do feel like it's a little bit, it's counterintuitive to some extent that maybe the students that have experienced this aren't also the ones that feel more confident. Perhaps they don't feel confident because they know that it's a challenging experience right. to overcome or something too. So I'm curious if you've considered different ways of maybe analyzing that data. Um, we haven't really yet, and I don't know that our study could answer. You're raising really important issues. I don't know that our data could address them in yeah. that way. Um, and yet we're also, I don't know why that lived experience isn't really, we don't know, yeah. and I don't think that we, we don't, we just didn't ask enough questions. We have some open-ended responses at the end, I think, that we've looked through, but not, there's not, there's not a lot there to look yeah. at it, but that would maybe be 
next the next steps. study yeah. next study we could we could look at that or even doing some kind of qualitative interviews or even just with I'm a, I'm a psychologist by training and so I would love to do an experiment and you know yeah. have some students get one kind of extracurricular activity and have others get another kind and see you know to, that's sort of how I would like to see well what really is having that causal impact uh, in changing competence levels and again it is important to say confidence levels were very high yeah. you know that, that's the other piece of it I mean it was they were pretty much across the board quite high so thank you anyway, thank you cool. thank you one last question for Colleen okay. this is about the policy ad I wonder how much does the social media influence you know get into the practice or homework you know as students think through the power of social media influence and in whatever that they could leverage from? That's a really good question. So yeah, I, this would be when I wish uh, Mitch or Dr. Vadolas was here. There's one piece though, he does ask them to review a policy with current research and analyze that policy. So I, I think he acknowledges in class how all these different inputs do influence and I, I do think he does a little bit with the social media piece but he's asking them to use information that's verified to really analyze and look at a policy and see how it's working because and maybe that's key hopefully that yes you can take some of this information see what the feel is out there but the science piece mm -hmm. the evidence that's been reviewed and is part of looking at and analyzing a policy is probably still hallmark in importance. Absolutely, yeah, so. and I think, yes, also, right, uh, the oh, um, communication competency and really educating and training our next generation professionals to make the best use of social media, especially yes. in identifying yeah. misinformation and demystifying, mm -hmm. right, all yes. the untruths. So, so important. So important. Yeah. Well, thank you all of you and one round of applause, another round of applause for our amazing speakers. Thank you all. I wish you a wonderful afternoon. If there is an evaluation component, please feel free to give us feedback. Thank you. All right, thank you.